MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program for politics. History. The security national. Crime organized. Money. Social. Global. Corruption. And Now, with you, and now, with you, and now, with you, and now, with I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Alex Aronson is here. Alex is the former chief counsel to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who was also on my show. He worked on judicial ethics, oversight, and dark money issues, and he advised on the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. He wasn't there yet for Gorsuch. He missed that joy, but he was there for the other two. So he, he had a real front row seat to uh, lots of stuff that went on. He has a lot of opinions, obviously, about all the <laughs> Supreme Court fuckery that we're going to get into. Um, one quick note, we recorded this last Tuesday. It was uh, June 27th and before the Supreme Court released all those wretched decisions last week. So we, we knew they were coming, but we didn't know about them yet. So we don't cover those, which is fine. It was the day that the first Leonard Leo piece that I wrote came out. I wrote the second one on Tuesday. If you're interested in this stuff at all, please go to my Prevail Substack and read about Leonard Leo. I did a two-part deep dive man in the middle about him and all of his connections. He is, if you don't know, people unaware, Leonard Leo is the man most responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade because he packed the court, man. And I went really into the weeds with this. So please, uh, please read that, share it. I think one thing that we can do to help this dire situation is to make Leonard Leo famous. And as I said on the 5-8 on Friday... He has the most villainous villain name of all villain names, Leonard Leo. I mean, it sounds like something from like an old Batman comic. It's an, it's a memorable name. It's a name easily associated with uh, villainy. So, you know, everybody's got to know who this guy is. That's the best thing that we can do. Alex and I talk about a lot of things. <laughs> Before we started, I, I kind of read him through some questions and he was like, we're never going to finish all this in an hour. But we did. We got through it in almost exactly an hour. Um, great conversation. Always wonderful to talk to him. He knows so much stuff and, uh, you know, and ultimately is a hopeful guy. So that's the thing that, that I like the best is that, um, you know, in addition to all this great knowledge that he has, he really has a lot of hope for us. That, that it's not all lost, which is wonderful and which we need, you know, because it's not. We have the numbers. Now, having said that, there are times, I don't know, you know, LB and I have this running joke about, about simulation and stuff like that. And I, 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 don't, I don't really think there's a simulation. But you look around sometimes at all the shit that's happening. You know, there's these stories about climate change that are just, I mean, if you ever stop and like read these stories, you know, like not scroll through the headlines, but just go read the stories about the climate change. And it's it's really bad, <laughs> like really bad. And it's getting to the point now where obviously you look out at the weather and the weather's completely fucked up everywhere. You know, Texas a couple weeks ago was the hottest place on earth. It was like 107 degrees for a week in a row. The governor there can't even keep the fucking power on because he's so inept. You know, here in New York, 
We still, uh, on certain days, can smell the smoke from the Canadian wildfires, which I can't even imagine, you know, what it's like to be in Canada. I mean, uh, closer to it. It's just awful. So everything literally smells like fire and brimstone right now. And uh, so you got that. You've got AI, which I think, I don't know, even six months ago was still you kind of thought AI, you thought about this, the, the uh, Spielberg film, uh, you know, with Haley Joel Osment. And now it's suddenly, like really suddenly everywhere. AI is going to do this and AI is going to do that and AI is going to do this. And, you know, we have an entire body of work in science fiction warning about the dangers of AI. I mean, almost every sci-fi book that covers it warns about it. It's not something that people take lightly or think is going to be great for the most part. It's always the same story in these books. Some, you know, hubristic, money-hungry genius thinks it's wonderful and then everything gets ruined because of AI. Um, that's basically the plot of every AI thing that ever AI'd. Now that's out there. Okay. So you've got the, you've got the climate disaster that makes certain places on the planet look like actual hell. You've got AI You've got aliens, you know, and, and these UFO. There's a new ner uh, term for UFO. I can't remember what it is. I, I, it doesn't matter. You know, government agencies doing actual things on Congress talking about spotting aliens and seeing these uh, these alien ships that nobody could explain. Nobody even talks about it at all, <laughs> like at all. And, uh, you know, the best and the brightest that we have to offer, meanwhile, on planet Earth are like, all we talk about is like, Trump and Elon Musk, two of the fucking dumbest, most least interesting people that have ever existed. And I don't know. I wonder if humanity is in this place where, you know, in Goodfellas, where, where he's, you know, he's going through and he's got to go to the house and make the meatballs. And then he's got to get the cocaine and he's got to drive to Pittsburgh and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, he's driving and he's all strung out and he looks up and the helicopter's there. I wonder if humanity is like at that point. You know, that we're at whatever, whatever simulation we're in, are they going to come rescue us? Is this the point at Lord of the Flies where the grownups show up on the island? I don't know. You know, I'm laughing about it and I don't really believe all of that. I think it's just, you know, something that happens. But my God, you know, if, if you were to take a, a, a look at all this stuff and say, OK, what would be the signs of the coming apocalypse? You know? <laughs> if you're playing apocalypse bingo, you would have cashed out by now. That's all I'm saying. So, uh, yeah, it's it's we really do need to fix the fucking court so that we can have freedom so that we can go address all these issues before, you know, the world becomes uninhabitable. Probably an important thing. I'm just saying, um, you know, it's it's July. It doesn't even feel like July. The weather's been very strange. What can I say? Uh, these are the thoughts that I've been having. So anyway, I hope everybody had a great 4th of July. Um, we're coming on the 250. We're coming on the 250 of, of July 4th of Independence Day. I know, you know, bicentennial means 200 years and sesquicentennial means 150 years. So I'm assuming that the 250 is the bisesquicentennial. Um, which feels appropriate. I think people are, headline writers are going to have fun with that when the time comes. So yeah, I got nothing else. We'll be right back with Alex Aronson. Three fingers to Santis is a big fascist asshole. Spends money on lawsuits while the state is flat broke He kidnapped some migrants Sent them to Martha's Vineyard He vilifies teachers 
He says they're too woke. We reject woke ideology. Weirdo the scientist laughs like a hyena. Wears heels on his floor chimes to make him more tall. The prisoners at Gitmo complained of abuses. What did he see there? He doesn't recall. Trace de dos Es un grande fascista, es un grande pandejo, and his wife is one too. He won't protect trans kids and their parents and doctors. Don't vote for the Santis. Make Florida blue. Alex Aronson, welcome to Prevail. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. So you were, for a while, the general counsel for uh, for my favorite senator, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And that sounds, you know, it, it, when you go to your bio page anywhere, that's a very snazzy thing to have on one's resume. But I'm b- before we begin and delve into the many, many things that we have to talk about, because we before we turned uh, the camera on or the recorder on, we went through quickly all the questions you were like, there's no way we're going to, we're going to get to any of this in an hour. Uh, I do want to go through a little bit of, of your background. So uh, how do you get a job like that? And what does it involve? Like on the day to day, what what did you spend your time doing? Sure. Well, for me, it was, I think uh, largely a stroke of good, good fortune and good timing. Um, But, you know, my background was as a organizer, of course, as a lawyer, I was a civil rights lawyer at the time I, I made my way to the Senate working at the Justice Department. So, you know, I had a you know, substantive issue kind of expertise that was in line with what, you know, the senator was working on in the in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that was he was going to be called upon to really lean into as we turned into the Trump era. I joined him in the spring of uh, 2017 um, as the kind of Trump judge conveyor belt really started getting rolling. And as the kind of, um, assaults on the rule of law from the Trump Justice Department really started becoming clear. So that was kind of how I made my way in. And then, you know, the day to day of the job was was, you know, exhilarating equal parts. It's, I'd say exhilarating, exhilarating and maddening. Um, you know, we were in the minority the whole time. And, you know, of course, the the news was just, you know, flying left and right. And, yeah. you know, with each with each news story kind of seemingly falling further and further into the breach of the kind of lack of precedent for what we were seeing from the Trump administration. So happy to kind of dig into any of the, the details of what the work looked like. But, yeah, it was it was pretty wild to be there. So how closely did you did you work with um, the senators across the aisle, as they say, in Washington? Did you get to know a lot of these people or was it more like internal to your to your own camp? Well, I would say I worked with them a little bit. I worked with their staffs pretty extensively and I was around them all the time. You know, you're, you know, in the in the business meetings, the, you know, the public, the markups and the, the hearings that the that the committee had. I was in close proximity to them, which, you know, for, for somebody like me, it, it, was, it was it was it took a toll. Um, I had, you know, I would sit behind uh, Senator Whitehouse at the dais, you know, the Judiciary Committee and um, where we were positioned. 
um, the, the Republican senators would come in from the ante room right behind me and sort of file past the senators right between me and the and the senators. And so they would, you know, come very close to me and I would have to resist my urge to trip them um, because they would just, you know, they would just particularly during this era and they haven't stopped, you know, just engage in such obviously bad faith politics and uh, such egregious displays of, um, you know, partisanship and, and bad faith that it was it was it was hard for me to restrain myself at times. I think you should get some sort of congressional medal of honor, although that's one of the things that Trump has cheapened by his presence, one of the many things he's cheapened by his presence. So have you you know, you were in, in proximity to Ted Cruz. Did you ever see him look into a mirror and there was no reflection there? Or is that just a rumor? <laughs> you know, I, I tried to take a look every time he passed back the past the kind of, you know, mirrored doors. But yeah, <laughs> I, uh, it was it was it was a great privilege to get to get to work there and have that job. But but being in close proximity to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Lindsey Graham um, are the, one of the things that I do not miss. Yeah, I could see that being, you know, I always say, you know, when I die and go to hell, hell right after they hand me the hazelnut coffee and then dot, 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 whatever it is, <laughs> um, you know, Ted Cruz will just be walking by me within tripping distance forever. I don't know. It would be a kind of thing on his way to meet the boss. You know, his right. boss will be like, good job, Ted. Um, <laughs> so, OK, now, Senator Whitehouse is great about, you know, talking about dark money and really sort of shining a light on all of these, you know, this this network of influence that exists in D.C., which I've tried to cover and write about a lot on my on my site, um, on Prevail, on my Substack, and especially with Leonard Leo and stuff like that. But one of the, I guess, kind of the, the starting point for not for all of it, but for how this this current incarnation of problems happens is Citizens United. And I think that's something that even for me, I'm talking about now for me, you know, I talk about it and I know va- I know what it means in a vague sense. But t- talk a little bit about Citizens United, about the decision, like what is it really? What does it mean? How did they justify making the decision um, and that kind of thing? Because I think that's that's a big thing that we're kind of up against in this daily struggle that we have. Yeah, uh, thanks. That's I, you know, I think that's a, a really important case to start with. And I think it's a good good one that you picked. Um, you know, and it falls, you know, as it falls in as part of what was really a, a coordinated 50 year scheme on the part of the conservative legal movement and their billionaire backers to infiltrate and capture the, the federal judiciary and our, you know, and our governmental institutions writ large. And of course, money in politics was a huge part of that that plan because they knew they could out, outgun us um, if they could open the floodgates. Um, and uh, Citizens United was, a you know, a, a you know, it was a, it was a response by interest groups, by right wing interest groups in the Republican Party to the, the you know, significant sweeping reforms of the McCain-Feingold bipartisan campaign finance bill. And in the, in that case, they were really gunning for the, the limits on independent expenditures in, in campaign politics. Uh, and in in reaching the, the constitutional holding uh, that the First Amendment prohibited that expenditure limit because money is speech. You know the the court, um, the court. You know, I think really, really advanced this agenda on the part of these these right wing interests, um, and 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 a, a big part of what they did in in justifying uh, that ban, that First Amendment ban, which of course, like, you know, is is 
largely unattached from textualism or originalism, the kind of twin <laughs> philosophies of interpretive methodology that the conservatives sort of say they apply to constrain their policy preferences. They really pointed to the bill's uh, disclosure provisions um, as a check on corrupting influences. They said, well, these ind independent expenditures can't be corrupting because we're going to know who's paying for them. And, you know, if you see the politician in question doing favors for the person who made the expenditure, you, you'll see that that would be a corrupt exchange. And so that will deter the type of corruption that you reformers are, are concerned about. And of course, you know, after reaching that holding, we've seen this, you know, decade long assault on on disclosure, which is, right. you know, still ongoing and which has made significant strides. It's people like Mitch McConnell, who in the context of Citizens United said disclosure is great. It's going to save us here have been waging a war against disclosure because now that they've you know got unlimited corporate spending in politics they want a unlimited anonymous corporate spending in politics so that they can not only kind of unleash this you know tidal wave of of corruption and um you know special special interest influence on our politics but really achieve the same results without even having to um, without even having to spend they can really just hang the threat of expenditures over these politicians heads Mm, that's a, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, the disclosure thing strikes me as, as important because even I wrote today in the thing in my piece from, from a national security standpoint, like, shouldn't we know where the money's coming from that comes into these campaigns and goes into these politicians, you know, campaigns uh, pockets? Because if we don't know, if there's no way to find out, I don't know that the money's not coming from Putin or China or whoever, pick your bad guy. Um, and, you know, I, I think the onus should be on Leonard Leo, for example, to uh, to tell us where his money's coming from. So we know that it isn't tainted. That just it just seems to make sense to me. But, you know, yeah. So. And, you know, and frankly, the the reasoning of the Citizens United opinion would, would you know, tend to support that. <laughs> there's an interesting there's an interesting kind of, you know, it's I wouldn't call it a wave yet. But, you know, there's some I think some promising um, developments in places like Washington and um, Minnesota, which have are starting to, uh, you know, pass laws that limit um, the, the acceptance of um, foreign foreign money in politics. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how those cases get litigated. I think, you know, you put your finger on a really important concern about the the risk of foreign influence, especially, you know, now that we know, you know, from investigations like, you know, Mueller's that there 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 are foreign efforts to interfere in our politics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, here here's a question. This wasn't even on my list, but I, I'm going to ad lib here. I'm going to pivot because this is something that nobody's able to really fully explain to me. Um, and I've asked a lot of different kinds of people. So people say, oh, well, you know, like, Kirsten Cinema is getting money from these right wing people, you know, whatever. She's getting money from the no labels. She's getting money from uh, what's his name? Uh, Harlan. I don't know if it was Harlan Crow or Barry. So one of these billionaires mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, sort of these rat fucker uh, campaign people. But <laughs> when I think when the average American thinks that they're getting money from so and so, they think that they really are getting money. Like, here's a pile of money. Don't spend it all in one place. And of course, it doesn't really work like that. There are, I think, pretty strict laws on what exactly the money can buy. But mm -hmm. it clearly, they use it somehow. It isn't just to keep them in power, right? I mean, what? I guess my question is, how much of this dark money donations and other things can someone like a like a Lauren Boebert actually use? Can 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 Joe Manchin go buy his Maserati and claim it on his on his uh, as a campaign expense? Like, how does that work? I guess. 
No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that he could. He could do something like that. And but it gets to this question of like, what is what is corruption, right? It, it, it again, it comes back to the court, and this has been a bipartisan issue at the court that has, you know, um, across party lines, um, defined corruption so narrowly that kind of in in the legal context, like corruption is quid pro quo corruption. Like, you know, here's a bag of money, you go do this bad act. But we know from just like being people in the world that that's not the the end of it, right? Corruption can yeah. look like a lot of things. And so, you know, when we have, you know, billionaires providing luxury lifestyles to nominal public servants like Supreme Court justices, yeah. and if we had similar arrangements with elected officials, you can understand how, you know, that provides an incentive, it provides a reward structure um, to continue to deliver results that those big money donors want. And so, sure, I mean, I think that that is happening, you know, across all sorts of um, contexts within our politics. And it largely connects to um, the kind of very loose and lax ways in which, you know, our, our laws have kind of approached this this question of corruption. Yeah. And of course, on the Supreme Court, there really isn't anything to guide anything. There's no ethics rules, as we know. And Clarence Thomas sought counsel from somebody, uh, maybe probably Scalia, who was like, yeah, fuck it, do it. Why not? There's nothing that says that you can't. So ha have at it. Um, it seems to me that the, the corruption on the court is is really stunning. I mean, I, I don't know what I thought was going on, but when the when the story broke about Clarence and Ginny Thomas, the story in ProPublica and, and Harlan Crow just underwriting so much shit for these two, um, it was really just jaw dropping. Like I couldn't, at first I... I, I still don't think I've quite wrapped my brain around it because it feels like this guy pays for pretty much anything and everything that Clarence Thomas wants to do, whether it's send his, you know, relative to prep school or, you know, go on some fancy vacation or have the, the, the Frederick Douglass Bible or, you know, put new a dishwasher in his mother's kitchen. I mean, <laughs> when you're making whatever the Supreme Court justices make, it's not that's not a lot relative to what a lawyer can make on the on the open market. But it's sure. not nothing. If you're yeah. not spending money on anything else, <laughs> you can accumulate, an, you know, quite a bit of money. So I guess. The first question with 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 that regard is, was this kind of thing like an open secret in D.C.? Is it something that people knew about in inside the workings of things and kind of maybe look the other way or weren't sure how big of a deal it was? Or was this totally blindsiding everybody? I would say that it was it was it was certainly not an open secret in in DC writ large or even really within the kind of political community in in DC. I, I I do tend to think it was something of an open secret within the kind of cloisters of the Supreme Court. And the reason I think that is that you know we've we've seen evidence and sort of unearthed evidence of you know a decades long effort by particularly Justice Scalia to to circumvent. The laws, and there are laws that you know constrain this behavior. We should talk about those because you're right that you know there is no enforceable ethics code at the court, but there are federal statutes that apply to these justices, which both Alito and Thomas appear to have broken in in withholding these disclosures. Um, that you know we should we should talk about how that you know that presents a rule of law problem. But back to Scalia, I mean Scalia took we could document, and it was it was probably many more than this, but we could actually document 85 discrete trips that were you know, hunting trips, often to luxury hunting lodges, often with big G GOP mega donors, politicians. He famously took one with Vice President Cheney. 
people with business before the court. We've talked on, on previous occasions, Greg, about the trip he took to Germany with gun rights activists. And mm. he received a, uh, a silver pistol as a gift from the NRA. And, you know, in the kind of casual context of that conference with his gun buddies, he was giving them the outcome of big cases like Heller. He was telling telling these activists how Heller was going to come down. Um, and so, you know, it, given given that backdrop, and also given the the the, the testimony of a Republican appointed Reagan Reagan judge uh, named Mark Wolf, who came and testified in the Senate subcommittee on federal courts recently, and really documented his own efforts to bring um, some of these disclosure issues to light back in 2011, uh, when interest groups um, on the left had noticed this cozy relationship with Har- between Harlan Crow and Thomas, and and Wolf had serious frustrations with the way. The Judicial Conference, which is an administrative organ run by Chief Justice Roberts and is supposed to kind of maintain these rules and ensure that they're being followed, had real concerns with the way that the Judicial Conference was was processing those complaints, suggesting that, you know, the Judicial Conference at the very least, and that's, again, Chief Justice Roberts, was fully aware uh, that that kind of this type of engagement was was underway with with these billionaires providing these travel, these fancy travels without any disclosure. Okay. Now, you mentioned the laws that are on the books that that do constrain the behavior. So first of all, ta- tell us a little bit about what these laws are and how they're in violation, but also what can be done about it? Do Supreme Court justices have to be impeached or can they just be arrested like everybody else? They could be arrested like anybody else. You know, and um, I think there's a real strong case to be made that the Justice Department, based on the facts as we know them, should at least investigate and perhaps pursue, you know, at least civil penalties against these two justices. The the, the law in question, I think the, the most clearly violated law in question is the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, which applied to, you know, officials across all three branches of government and had, you know, this is a post-Watergate good government reform that extended to the justices explicitly in the text. Um, and that really is at the heart of this disclosure question. Thomas and Alito both claim that, you know, relying on longstanding interpretation by that same judicial conference of something called the personal hospitality exemption, they didn't have to disclose uh, these trips um, as because they were because they were personal hospitality, because they'd been extended as personal hospitality. And and that is arguable as to many aspects of these trips. You know, even, you know, the the hunting, you know, the hunting lodges, the meals, the wine, all that stuff is is arguable. I think you, you know, you could make a strong case that the, the judicial conference's previous interpretations were way too lax. Indeed, that that position would be supported by the fact that in March, seemingly when confronted with the Justice Thomas allegations, the Judicial Conference made significant amendments to their financial disclosure rules and their interpretation of that exemption. But at, there's really no argument to be made that they had any business withholding the private jet travel because the personal hospitality exemption, and I know I'm getting deep into the weeds of the law here. No, no, it's good. We like really it. Only, yeah. really only extends to it. And you can read it in the statute. Um, food, lodging, and entertainment. It does not extend to transportation. And so, you know, this gets at this really bad faith and dishonest argument that Justice Alito put forth in the pages of the Wall Street <laughs> Journal to pre-butt Politico, where he makes the farcical claim that a plane could fall within the definition of personal hospitality because it's a facility, um, because we so co- so commonly refer to our flights on facilities. 
Yeah, uh, it's a facility. But really, what flight. he does is he he completely and 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 must he must have been willful. Um, he he must have willfully omitted the actual personal hospitality exemption, which extends only to food, lodging, and and entertainment, not to transportation. Well, yeah. To be fair, I mean, I'm sure they showed a movie on the plane. I mean, that is entertainment. It's true. It's true. You know, it's how true. is that different than going to a movie theater, right, right, Alex? Right. Well, you know, you could make the case. You know, you could even make the case that the half a million dollar yacht trip that Thomas took to Indonesia with Harlan Crow, you know, is not transportation, it's entertainment, right? You could plausibly make that case that it fits within that, you know, absurdly broad interpretation of the of the law. But, you know, even if that's the, the truth, right, even if that's the case, and he, you know, he, he doesn't deserve to be punished for that under the law, like it really just calls out for reform, right? There, it, we just should not be living in a world where it's acceptable, whether or not it's disclosed for a person with such awesome power as a public servant to be accepting gifts at that level of extravagance. No, it's ridiculous. And, and to be honest, when this, when the news first broke, I mean, you know, my first instinct always is to be like, good, get them, screw these guys. But I really had to stop and think like, okay, what if they really are friends? What if it's true that they've been friends for all this time and they're just, they're just buddies going away and this is how they do it. Yeah. It's, it's just too much. It's one thing if, you know, if you're going to your friend's house for dinner and, and they have a nice, you know, wine collection, you don't have to pay for, you know, but yeah. I, I couldn't, even in my own mind, even, even giving them any possible benefit of the doubt, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Cause first of all, I don't believe they're friends. If Clarence Thomas wasn't the Supreme court justice, Harlan Crow wouldn't give a fuck about him. Yeah, I'm going to no, go out right. on a limb here and say it. Yeah. I don't think he would care. <laughs> I think that he's friends with him. He is friends with him because he's in eighth grade and he has a swimming pool. It's really that uh, simple. It's, he's friends. They're friends because of the swimming pool. It's, it has right, nothing to right. do with his charming right. personality or anything else. Yeah. I mean, but again, how do you prove that in court? Well, I'm, he's my friend. Yes, he's my friend. I mean, it's, well, it's, they admitted they weren't friends until, you know, Thomas became a justice. It was years into his tenure, you know, that was, and it was in connection with a trip on the private jet that Harlan Crow made available to help, <laughs> you know, help uh, Thomas's burdens of having to fly commercial. My goodness. Oh my God. You know, they're also, you know, it's, it's, they're like inconsistent in these defenses, right? We hear from, from justice Thomas. No, we're friends. We've been friends for years. Like, what are you going to say? I can't have friends. And then Alito's excuses that I barely know the guy. <laughs> So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think about? I think I don't think Alito is very smart. I mean, I think that the more he opens his mouth, he he thinks he's really really smart, and he is just kind of not. Would be my takeaway from him. I don't know what's going on upstairs there, uh, but it's it's I, I'm very unimpressed with his intellect, and I would like to be. You know, if somebody's going to be have one of these nine jobs, I would like them to be smarter than me. Because I remember watching the Roberts confirmation hearing, whenever that was, oh one, oh two, I forget the year. Was it before? Yeah. And uh, I was impressed with that guy. I was like, this guy's really smart. I don't agree with him politically mm. or whatever, but mm. he's he's clearly qualified for the job. Therefore, they have to confirm him because he's qualified for the job. You know, and uh, I don't, I don't, I don't sense this from Alito. I sense a. Um, uh, a deep in intellectual insecurity that he masks by his um, bad jokes and, you know, judicial robe. But that's just my deep, opinion. Deeply, know. deeply held grievance. Yes. I mean, that, this is the other thing about Alito, right? He's just so mad all the time. And if like, this is what Alito's like when he's winning, God, you know, what would he be like if, if the shoe <laughs> were on his foot? I don't know. Why so mad, bro? Um, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned before, since we're on the topic of Alito, um, he wrote an op-ed 
in the Wall Street Journal, which I'm not I don't think that's something that justices of the Supreme Court usually do. Right. Is that a I have a usually I'm not aware of any precedent. For I can't think of one either off the top of my head. So the the guy that runs the Wall Street Journal op ed page is is James Taranto, who's like wrote he edited a book with Leonard Leo uh, 15 years ago. So this is a guy that's also in tight with these people. Um, and by these people, I mean Leonard Leo and his web lead. Uh, that's Leonard Leo. It's Sam Alito. It's Clarence Thomas. And it's a bunch of other people that that uh, most Americans have never heard of. But this guy's definitely, you know, tight enough with these people that it's there. Um, what did you think about it when that came out? Because it, as you put it, it was a pre-butt for the ProPublica story that was going to break. You know, what happened is ProPublica had the story. At the last minute, you go to the to the person that you're writing about and ask for comment and you tell them everything because this is what journalism does. Um, people on Twitter who do these long threads attacking people uh, without, in, you know, don't get comment, don't don't understand this. But um, and then he just <laughs> went and wrote this thing instead. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a dick move. I mean, by any <laughs> standard and and. You know, to pre-butt puts him in the unusual position of having to. I don't. I, I don't even know what my question is here. It's just very bizarre. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like sort of just a, a stunner that one, right? We all just sort of like looked slack jawed <laughs> at this at this screed that he put out there, and that and the very strange decision to do that, right? You wonder if he had any political strategic help or support on it, you know, with the drafting and everything and, and with the with the decision to put it out there. I'll start with the Wall Street Journal editorial board. I mean, you mentioned all of their connections to this, you know, web of dark money that has been, you know, in, in entangling our government and our and our society in the last, particularly over the last seven years or so. Um, the other connection they have is that four of their members have received $250,000 prizes from the Bradley Foundation, mm. which is one of the biggest um, vectors of dark money, you know, funds in the in the on the entire, you know, right ecosystem. And they're kind of, you know, directly lining the pockets of these editorial board members. It was, uh, I think, a, a, a great breach of kind of like journalistic integrity for the journal to do that. They took a lot of flack from their own news staff. I think we're, you know, we're starting to see kind of come out in public, you know, increasingly significant tensions between the opinion side of that paper, which is, you yeah. know, increasingly becoming a, a kind of just a rag for this, um, you know, frankly, author authoritarian movement. And Fascist, the news I was going to say, is, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the news side, which is still doing pretty good reporting. So certainly, I think it um, it calls into question the, the the journal's own journalistic ethics, and I think it particularly shines a light on um, a, an op-ed or an editorial page uh, publication that was put out before the the Dobbs leaked, which seemed to suggest inside knowledge of how um, that the deliberations within the court were shaking out. There was a leak of the Dobbs deliberations before there was a leak of the Dobbs opinion, and you know now that we know that you know Alito apparently has a cozy enough relationship with the Wall Street Journal editor board that he could, you know, swiftly get this thing published before ProPublica had put their piece out. And I think it certainly calls into question whether he was the one sort of alerting the ed board back then to the effort to, you know, move move um, some of the, the majority votes in the in the Dobbs case to overturn Roe to to a different position, which they were trying to beat back in that in that piece. And then, you know, finally that the, the the, the the piece itself was just a, I think a masterclass in dishonesty and bad faith from a sitting Supreme Court justice, 
And it is, you know, beyond the um, the facial kind of absurdity of some of the arguments he put forth, you know, for, for example, claiming that no reasonable person could think um, could could question his impartiality and and sitting on a case where he handed a two point four billion dollar victory to Paul Singer after Paul Singer had flown him to Alaska for a private fishing trip. You know, the, the kind of absurdity of that position, the dishonesty I mentioned earlier of his omission of the kind of true definition of personal hospitality. What I think it really what I think it really requires us to do is to um, question whether somebody who's willing to do that in the service of his own defense um, is really is really being honest when they you know hand down decisions like Dobbs, um, you know, when they, you know, advance their agenda through these cases where the doctrine doesn't always add up, right? Where the, you know, commitment to textualism, where the commitment to originalism doesn't seem to be adhered to. And so, you know, I think it's really telling that he's willing to engage in this type of legal manipulation in this public context, uh, given, you know, very vocal concerns from from, you know, court reform advocates and critics like me um, about the the way that they're, you know, playing fast and loose with constitutional law. They just do whatever they want, and then they figure out ways to justify it later. That seems to be certainly how Alito works, um, you know, for sure. He's there, there, I, as you said, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no consistency. It's just about this is something we want. Therefore, we're going to we're going to say starry decisis. And then if it's something we don't want, then starry decisis is, I don't know, the name of a nightclub or something. We'll just, yeah, we'll yeah. just go there for drinks after, after the show, you know, uh, I want to get back to the, to the leak of Dobbs for a second, because this is interesting. Now, did, did the wall street journal break that story? Do we, is that what happened? No, or they I can't didn't. That was a, okay. uh, that was a Politico scoop. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. So, but yet, there's supposedly this internal investigation. It leads nothing. And then again, we have this, he's in the ecosystem where there's a lot of PR people. There's a lot of, of publicists in Leonard Leo's dominion that he's really, really tight with. And not to say, or even suggest that, you know, Alito is the guy or that he's using these people or anything like that, but it would be really easy for him to do that if he wanted to. Um, what would be the purpose of him, of, of the right, leaking that hypothetically so the the theory of of a of a leak from the right would be that you know there was um potentially some softening of support for what was at some point a majority opinion uh, you know a, a majority block in support of that okay. opinion right and you know if somebody like alito were concerned that he was losing support as that wall street journal editorial page piece suggested there was they described an effort by Chief Justice Roberts to try to convince Kavanaugh to come more toward the middle. What Roberts wanted to do was sort of incrementally erode Roe using the Casey standard, whereas Alito just wanted to rip the mask off and, and end it there. Um, putting the opinion out in the world would make clear to to the to the people, particularly the people on the right, who you know very much um, prioritized ending Roe as a condition for supporting these justices right uh, putting that out in the world would create enough blowback that they would you know no longer be soft in their support for that position and if that was you know if that theory you know has any truth in the world if that was the you know if that's what happened then i, I think we know how that worked out yeah yeah so it was it was kavanaugh and and roberts were the two kind of wishy-washies that that came over or is that what happened well, Roberts never came over. Roberts stayed in his right. position. Okay, he that's what I thought. Yeah. He would have upheld the ban, but he would have done it on a different legal basis. He wouldn't have overturned Roe 
Okay. Um, you know, I think, and I think the reason he wanted to do that, I, I can't read his mind, but you know, I think we know that Roberts, and we see it in in this term's decisions, has um, you know real um, concern for the court's public stature, its perceptions of legitimacy, and I think he's really eager for it not to be seen as you know driving headlong into the abyss in terms of, in terms of kind of moving a partisan agenda. And I think he thought, you know, we can accomplish many of the same goals, you know, really eliminating abortion in this country if we do it incrementally by using this Casey undue burden framework rather than just overturning Roe outright. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, he's like, yeah, guys, we have to be really, you know, really careful about going down, down, down into the abyss. Meanwhile, he's basically in that titan submersible at this point uh, in, in this vast ocean of, of corruption. Um so yeah, all right. So this thing it, it, again, this is all hypothetical now. Hypothetically, the right leaks this thing to hypothetically get the get the um, you know the wheels turning for people. And Kavanaugh's hypothetical bookie calls him and says, "You better play ball." <laughs> uh, I kid. I'm joking. I'm just joking. But this is. I want to talk about Roberts. So this is a good a good point to uh, to take a short break. We'll be right back with Alex Aronson. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Alex Aronson. Uh, you, you brought up Roberts. I, Roberts to me is sort of fascinating because I I mentioned before I really thought he was cool 
coming into the job, I, I I was like, this guy's smart. He's with it, you know. And I think I think he he's not not smart, but I've been very disappointed with him lately. Certainly in the Trump era, with you know that impeachment was a fucking joke. I mean, he had a lot of I think I think he had a lot of leeway to make that impeachment hearing whatever he wanted it to be, and. Uh, as I saw it, he wanted to just sit on his fucking phone and play Candy Crush or something while while these idiots were talking, um, uh, you know, to defend Trump. And it, it just it, it turned it into more of a joke than it should have been. And I blame him for that because he's the one he could have been the grown up in the room and he chose not to. But mm. I'm wondering about, like, how much power does the chief justice have to set like the agenda and stuff like that? Because you put out a tweet uh, today, today, by the way, is, is Tuesday. It's June 27th at 730 at night. So if anything weird happens after this, it's not our fault. Uh, <laughs> you put out a tweet and in, in the tweet, you, you said something like uh, the media is always talking about balance in the court and achieving this balance, but they manipulate the docket and they control what's on the docket. And, and meaning you know, what cases get heard, who controls that? Is is that only Roberts? Is it a, all of them together? Like how much power does he have to push this agenda? Because I think it's a lot, but I might be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I would say he has he has a lot of power. And then there's contexts in which he just doesn't have much, much more power at all than his colleagues. Okay. Uh, and picking cases for cert is, is one of those latter contexts. He has no more power than his colleagues to choose which cases the court hears. The way that the court decides which cases to hear is that when petitions for certiorari come up, because of course, the Supreme Court has discretionary jurisdiction in, in the vast majority of cases. There's some few cases that have what's called original jurisdiction and it comes to the Supreme Court. Uh, but but in the in the vast majority of cases, they have discretionary jurisdiction um, and they use the certiorari docket to pick and choose which cases they, they want to hear. Um, and the, the point I was making simply in that tweet was that kind of when we look at, you know, and usually when the media looks at kind of how the court is doing, whether it's you know going really far right or really, you know, or, you know, not going far right or far right or staying balanced. Um, they'll sort of like um, tally the cases, right? They say, oh, in this voting case, like we, you know, recently the court decided the Allen versus Milligan case, and they decided that for, you know, for voting rights, right, to, 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 to um, not allow the further erosion of the Voting Rights Act. And so that was sort of hailed as this great civil rights victory. But really, it was just a preservation of the status quo right um, you know, and then they'll pick it. And when they move the law, when they when the conservatives win in the case, the law almost universally moves to the right. Um, very, very rarely at this point does the law ever actually move to the left. There's a few exceptions, right? The Bostock and Ober Obergefell LGBTQ cases are are probably the most notable of those. But so, you know, the sort of there's a steady march of law to the right, and by their through their ability to to literally craft the docket of cases that they will decide. They, they can sort of manipulate the way the world sees their output, right? Because they can they can choose a bunch of cases like the the case they decided. I know it's not the day that your listeners will be listening, but you know, um, you know, this week today they decided the Moore versus Harper independent state legislature theory, knocking down that crazy theory, right. uh, and they're getting a lot. They're being hailed in the media for kind of vindicating the you know, America's electoral system, but they didn't have to take that case, right? It presented a, a facially absurd and frivolous theory, dangerous theory. They could have just rejected it right they could have you know a, you know yeah. turned it away and they wouldn't wouldn't have enjoyed the headlines that they're getting today so i think that's very much part of their calculus in considering which cases they want to take you know 
playing yeah. playing that media game. And that's a cynical take. I think a lot of people would would reject that view. Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a pretty good view because you know again there is that and as you say these things i'm thinking about it and you're right there there it, it never or almost never moves to the left it always is at this point it's an erosion of rights rather than expansion of 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 rights for people and uh the the what what's the name of the the case that was today i wrote it down and now of course i can't find Moore it versus harper yes i i'm reading that these things are like okay this is fine but it makes is this is the one that that uh, ellie mistel said um, it basically makes Bush v. Gore the law now, where, okay, this, the, the legislatures can't mess with the elections, but the Supreme Court kind of can. Is that accurate? Is that Yeah, they still absolutely can. And I'd commend to your readers a, a piece um, that would have aired last you know, last week, this week, in, uh, in Slate by Rick Hassan, who talks about the kind of very looming real threats that this case leaves open for mischief and meddling by the Supreme Court in the 2024 election. I mean, I think it's, you know, indisputably a, a very good thing that they rejected the independent state legislature theory. It's a, it's a wackadoodle theory that would have, you know, completely removed state Supreme courts from their ability to enforce their state constitutions, to check these increasingly extreme state legislatures. So that's great that that's gone, but they're, they're, they've left a huge amount of room for themselves as they so often do to come in and be the final decision makers. Mm, yeah. And I feel like there's a, um, there's a sneakiness about it. Like you said, like they, that we're going to do three things that are little, that make it seem like we're not terrible. And then whammo, they hit you with the, with the, with the lightning bolt. Yeah. But, and you know, we, we've got, it's, I think it's important to know we've got, you know, proof, we've got evidence of the transactional nature of chief justice Roberts's decision-making. The best example of this is in uh, the, the ACA case, the, uh, the big case NFIB versus Sibelius, where, you know, amazing investigative reporting discovered that he effectively, he traded his vote to uphold the law. The, you know, the signature law of the Obama presidency on this very narrow tax clause ground. He he was willing to do it on that narrow tax ground, but not to uphold the power of Congress to pass that law under the Commerce Clause, which is, you know, um, and, and, in, and in doing that, he really advanced the conservative legal movement's decades long campaign to really weaken the Commerce Clause. And so the reporting really shows you there's some other details to that horse trade with Kagan, but um, it really shows you the sort of transactional and really cynical nature of the way Roberts does not call balls and strikes, but you know reaches outcomes that both comport with his own policy agenda and meanwhile keep public perception of the court in a in a safe enough place for them to continue to do their work. Yeah, and a safe enough place. Thank you for explaining that because I think that's 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 helpful. The safe enough place is is interesting because I feel like. People really are much more aware, certainly since Dobbs, of who these fuckers are now and yes. which ones are the bad ones and which ones aren't. And, you know, we have now situations where there's protests in front of people's houses. People down the street from Kavanaugh came out, you know, the, the, his neighbors and stuff like that. Um, there's protests in front of Leonard Leo's, you know, one of his main estates um, on the anniversary of Dobbs. And I think in the media, they're getting they're getting blasted. You know, Thomas and, and Alito in particular are getting hammered. Deservedly. Um, yeah, deservedly. But do you think that this has effect? Is is the pushback working, I guess? Because it feels like maybe it is, but I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a reasonable case to be made that some of these some of these pullbacks that we've seen this term, particularly in the voting rights case, because, you know, the, in the voting rights context and you mentioned sort of being impressed with Roberts, he's he's an impressive character, right? He's he's had this kind of brilliant career. He is a brilliant person. Um, at the same time, he he's a reactionary in, in my view. He yeah, and he yes, came yes. up in the in the Reagan Justice Department developing the theories to gut the Voting Rights Act that he ultimately implemented in his you know notoriously shameful uh, Shelby County decision, which was decided ten years ago, a, a couple of days ago, and which has really you know which really gutted the Voting Rights Act and has led to this assault on minority voting that we're seeing throughout the red states. So you know, I think it's it's just. You, you can't lose sight of who these people are, no matter what kind of face they show you. Yeah, important. And uh, yeah, no, but the, I mean, in his defense, like, you know, the Republicans won't win any more elections if they can't keep the vote voter suppression up because um, they're not popular and their policies are not popular among the majority of American voters. And, uh, you know, and, and the Supreme Court policies, even less so. Right, right. And we've heard, and we've heard you know, right wing activists you know, state that, admit to that, right? In leaked tapes, for example, um, the head of Heritage Action talked about how this was a, a strategy to help Republicans win elections, voter suppression, that is, right? Because they understand yeah. that as long as people are voting, they're going to be losing. Yeah. We, and instead of just changing their damn, I never understand these right-wing billionaires. I mean, they're all, the billionaires are almost always right-wing, but spend so much money on all this crap just to make everyone's lives miserable. Just you take that money and just pay your fucking taxes. Like, why is this so hard? Why, why do we have to be? And it's usually second generation wealth that, that does this. Have you noticed that? It's never like yes, the founding. Probably. It's usually like, hey, I inherited mommy and daddy's money. Um, I don't want the government to take it because I'm a libertarian. Because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, my my gold plated bootstraps, and right, therefore right. fuck all. You know, it, it's just it's so dumb to me. I don't I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, on. you know, I think the thing is, Greg, these people are living such just just grotesquely different lives than you know anybody, any of us. That it's hard to put ourselves in their in their shoes, right? It's hard to imagine what the world looks like from the perspective of having you know inherited billions of dollars and the kind of resentments and grievances that stews in you to have that kind of privilege. I it must be. I don't know. Um, you know, they say money can't buy happiness, but wouldn't you want to test that theory? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> So I have a couple more questions because we're, you know, I, I want to make sure that you that I don't keep you too long. Um, all right. So Leonard Leo, who's my bugbear, because like me, Leonard Leo is, is an Italian guy, a Gen X guy, grew up Catholic and from uh, a public high school in New Jersey. And he's not even that much older than me, which always doesn't ever fails to blow my mind. Like, <laughs> what have I been doing with my life that I yeah. I haven't controlled the courts, you know. What am I? I, I don't understand. Are you trying to overturn Vatican II? <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring back Vatican III. I, 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 I prefer the the original to the sequel. No. Um. So, have you ever met him, Leonard Leo? I have not. I have not met. Leonard okay, Leo. that was my question. So, what's what's your take on him? Because he's such a, I don't know. He's such kind of a fascinating figure. Although, I think he's probably boring as fuck in real life. But you know what I mean. Yeah, he's really he really seems to be where's Waldo in these uh in these corruption stories. He he, oh, he yeah. keeps popping he keeps popping up, right? He's the guy that connected uh, he was he's there in the painting with Harlan Crow and mm -hmm. and Thomas hanging out at the at the hunting lodge. He's the person that connected Alito to Singer and sort of made that, you know, that little arrangement happen. 
he's really been at the center of it. And I mean, his story is that he, you know, when he graduated from uh, Cornell Law School and came to D.C., he rather than kind of embark on a legal career, he really at Justice Thomas's advice, frankly, that he's, he's talked about this, um, decided to go to the Federalist Society and, and focus on on uh, network building and power building. And that's what he's been up to. He, he's been behind the scenes as the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, which is nominally a kind of ideological hub. They call it a sort of a debating society for conservative lawyers, but to my mind really has served as an effective front for a very powerful, hugely funded political network um, that Leonard Leo coordinates. He's stepped away from his paid role at the Federalist Society. He's still their, the the co-chair of their board. Um, and, you know, f- from his perch there, he has sort of orchestrated a, a very complex and, you know, uh, well-coordinated ecosystem of kind of different politically useful uh, organs to infiltrate, capture, and influence the law through the judiciary. And he's become really wealthy in the process of doing this, particularly in the in recent years. He, mm-hmm. He's um, had a leading role in the personally, uh, a, a leading role in the selection of many of the Supreme Court justices. He did this strange thing during the Trump administration of kind of taking a leave of absence from the Federalist Society to advise the Trump White House. I think it's it's decently likely that they broke some, some broke some laws in, in his doing that. Um, but you know, particularly since the the Trump administration, he's he's um, leaned heavily into this um, consulting company, which has been taking in just huge amounts of contracts from a yeah. lot of the groups that he has helped form. Um, and so, you know, through through he's been able to self enrich and and build just a huge amount of power and influence within um, the, within the government, you know, over the course of his decades of doing this. I read that the other guy, what's his name, Calabresi, the the other founder of the Federal Society, wanted to put. A little bit of distance there, I think, probably, you know, sees the writing on the wall maybe a little bit. I, I don't know if there's a rift as much of, as a, you know, let's make sure that we're not all involved with whatever it is you're involved yeah. with. Yeah, I have met Calabresi. It was on a Zoom call, and uh, he spoke to this a little bit. He, uh, you know, he said that there were some within the Federal Society leadership that did have misgivings about the extent to which Leo was in, engaging in politics. Um, and so, you know, he didn't say much more than that. But, you know, you can see why, right? This is yeah. a organization that had established, I think, a pretty mainstream, credible brand, Had, a, had still does, had, had a lot of kind of big corporate donors in addition to its huge billionaire dark money donors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as as Leo and as the Federalist Society became more and more entangled with these very toxic and dangerous Trump nominees, I think there was starting to be some resistance within the organization, which may have been why he he stepped off out of his paid role. Yeah. Um, and then he goes to the word for it. It's interesting. If you look at the late stage Trump campaign, like post, like around the time of the insurrection, like you know, November, December, January, the only people that remained were either like flat out crooks or people that had some connection to the Catholic Information Center, Letter Leo Hub. I, uh-huh. I don't know. Just an interesting observation. That <laughs> um, not sure why. It seems very Machiavellian, like ends justify the means kind of shit with these people. Um, where they just are like, yeah, I know Trump's evil, but you know we have to get oh, our, ju- oh, our judges yeah. they're, in there. They're, that's like that. That seems to me to be their total governing philosophy, right? Like, yeah, it's justify the means. That the means at, at this point are kind of like ending American democracy. Yeah, and their ends of theo fascism justify that. 
Right. It's like in in the in the in the original Crusades, you know, you were allowed to kill people. You got, you know, forgiven in advance if you advanced on the Holy Land. And mm-hmm. um, if you went back and looked at what happened, it was nothing about it was very uh, upliftingly holy by any stretch of the imagination. But there, there was that perception. So, you know, I guess everybody's souls were uh, cleansed or something like that. <laughs> I don't know what he's putting a, an awful lot of faith in the almighty being just exactly the way that he thinks it's going to be. We'll see. No, actually, you know, we won't, maybe he will. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, two more, or actually three more quick questions. Um, who's the best of the Trump nominees that are on the Supreme court? Cause it seems to me that, that, that it's uh, Amy Coney Barrett. That seems to me, reading the tea leaves and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, I don't really read any of this stuff or, or get it that much. I feel like she's smarter than the other two. What's your take on that? I mean, I don't look at like whether, what, whether these folks are smart as all that virtuous to me, like the stupider they are, the better, um, you know, given what I know <laughs> they're after. Um, okay. I don't think any of them is like stupid. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that any of them is also like, you know, the, the pinnacle of, you know, jurisprudence. Um, we don't have any like judge friendlies in this crew, but um, no, I think, I think Barrett has, you know, Barrett, Barrett voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. Let's like, no, let's I am, yeah. very clear, right? She voted to create a new constitutional right to dark money that has no basis in the text, uh, has no basis in the history that they claim to care so much about. Um, she should have recused from that case. The Kochs, it was a Koch brothers case that Americans for Prosperity brought. Well, and while the case was pending, they spent more than a million dollars to try to get her confirmed. She should have recused. Um, so, no, I have I have a lot of concerns about Justice Barrett. Um, and, you know, I think at the same time, Justice Gorsuch, as as um, much as I disagree with him, he's shown some flashes of decency um, on the gay rights issues, on the, the tribal issues. Yeah, the Native Americans. So, you know, I don't think any of them is like completely straightforward. Kavanaugh has issued some votes, you know, including this term that haven't been too bad. But, um, you know, he, he's somebody that perjured his way onto the Supreme Court repeatedly. And so I just don't I just don't hold any of them in in very much esteem, given what it took to get them there and what um, what they've done and kind of where I you know very strongly believe they're heading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. Kavanaugh. We, we've resisted talking about Kavanaugh for this whole time somehow. <laughs> yeah, we um, keep resisting. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't want to get into him because I've gotten into him enough. Lord knows. But yeah, um, yeah. my main question is because this comes up. I have my hashtag who owns Kavanaugh. I and my, you know, my friend Stephanie Koff wrote the pieces about Kavanaugh, the five part series years ago now, outlining all the, all the issues with him with this money and, and, and all this stuff. Um, and, and the red flags that were there and the op on, you know, uh, all the Dr. Ford stuff. Mm-hmm. What, what puzzles me and the thing that I get pushback from when I say it is he isn't required. This is the, the argument that I hear. Uh, from people on Twitter who I like and trust. He mm-hmm. isn't required to say who gave him the money to pay the down payment or who paid off his debts if that person is in his family or in this like small thing, which is fine. I actually myself believe there's probably a 95% chance that the person who paid off Kavanaugh is his dad because his dad, mm-hmm. the year before he got there, got like some $14 million golden parachute buyout I'm sure his mortgage is paid off. He doesn't have any other kids. His grandkids are living. Like, it makes total sense that he would be like, here's your down payment. Have at it. You know, I, yeah. and, and I don't care. But why didn't he say so? That's the thing that puzzles me. Because 
if it's true, just tell us. Right. If it's not true, what what's the point of uh, uh, does he just not want to further perjure himself by lying and saying it was his dad? Mm-hmm. Or I, I don't know. What what's your take on that? It's just it, something doesn't sit right with me there. Yeah, and we did ask him about this, right? Um, although I don't think he was ever, you know, questioned publicly about about this stuff. We um, Senator Whitehouse did include questions for the record, written questions um, that got at some of this. And you know, our best read of his very cagey, extraordinarily cagey answer was was the same one you you made that it was likely a, a gift from a parent. Um, and you know why didn't he? Why wasn't he more forthcoming? You know, I think they they both parties to a certain extent, but particularly the Republicans have started to take um, to, to to look at these nominations hearings and proceedings as like an adversarial process where you don't give an inch. And you know, I think that certainly after the kind of charges were leveled against Kavanaugh around the many you know the, the numerous sexual assaults that um, he seems to have committed. I think there was just a um, a very defensive, very kind of batten down the hatches mentality about the questions, um, you know, which were grounded in facts, um, you know, the, the, and, and asked in good faith, um, you know, that the, that the senators were asking. So that's that's my best read. And I think, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, he only has to he only has to answer what he needs to answer to get confirmed. And so. Yeah. They had an inside line to the Collins office, I'm sure. They knew what they needed to do to get her vote. And once they had her vote, the game was done. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it's just trolling at this point with this guy. Or or he's, you know, he's just fucking lying. I also think there's a 0% chance that he was not on that Kaczynski guy's dirty joke zero, email list. Zero chance. Yeah. Zero chance. He's yeah. he's exactly the target audience for that. Yeah, he said he didn't recall, but I mean, if he if he was on it, which again, zero chance he wasn't, he would have received like hundreds of sexually explicit emails from that judge. Yeah, and probably laughed about them or put it to spam. I don't know. Maybe he knows how to do that. Okay, last question: uh, the court now. I mean, it seems like it's veering. It's so corrupt that it's veering towards illegitimacy. We don't want that. What can we do? We need to expand the court. Do we need to have term limits? Do we need to? And how can we get any of this stuff done? When Senator Whitehouse was on my show here, Prevail, he said, Mm -hmm. there's not enough public appetite for this. People don't care yet to expand the court. So are we there because of Dobbs? Like, what do you think we should be doing? Yeah, I think we need to be uh, working hard to to call attention to the corrupt scheme um, that succeeded in capturing the court and to how it's damaging Americans' lives. Um, everybody that cares about this needs to talk about it as much as they can. We should infuse it into our politics. We should make clear to our elected leaders that this needs to be a priority. Because if it's not dealt with, then this court will continue to you know, issue its rulings for the wealthy few, the billionaire backers that send them on their fancy trips. It will continue to issue, issue rulings that take away our rights and freedoms. And so right now, there's a huge gap, in my estimation, between the outrage among the people at the level of corruption that we see on offer at the court and the amount of pushback that they're getting from our elected leaders, right? It's been a few senators um, that have led this fight. S- Senator Whitehouse is, is probably foremost among them. Senator Wyden is doing great work in the in the Finance Committee. Even Senator Durbin, who has, I think, been really reluctant to engage in this fight, has has at least you know been moving it forward. I think we need a lot more from them, right? We have we're in a crisis. The, the, the presently composed Supreme Court presents a crisis of democracy, and we need an appropriate and proportionate answer to that from from political leaders that believe in democracy. Right. So when we had an attack on our capital that went to the heart of democracy, 
The House convened the January 6th committee and told that story and made the case to the American people through highly produced and very effective hearings and real investigation um, into what happened to, to, to make sure that something like that never happens again. We need to take a similar approach with this court. And we need to investigate the corruption. We need to expose the activism um, in its opinions, the lack of principle. We need to expose and and investigate and talk about the what Leonard Leo is doing through his you know his his apparatus of judicial influence. Um, you know he's got dark money flooding our universities and schools to produce the, the you know the content, the intellectual capital that becomes constitutional law at the Supreme Court. We need to understand much better how that you know connection works. You know, then we need to demand real accountability. I think the Senate should, um, because they're the ones with a, a Democratic majority right now, should come together and advance a you know strong, ambitious uh, ethics and anti-corruption package, an anti-corruption and accountability bill. Sheldon Whitehouse has a, has a very strong one, one that I helped develop with him. I think other senators in the Congress have good ideas and and should be brought into that conversation. And the Democrats should lean into this fight because if they do, and that bill would be popular, right? You know, things yeah. to put in place an ethic, an enforceable ethics code, recusal standards to get dark money out of the judicial process so that we can see who's funding amicus briefs, um, to perhaps put restrictions on receipt of gifts um, at the level of the five hundred thousand dollar yacht. I mean, I know, God forbid. <laughs> Clarence Thomas and I get to take half million dollar yacht trips. Um, but, you know, if the Democrats could come together and, and advance a package along those lines, it would poll at like 75 yeah. percent and the Republicans would obstruct tooth and nail. And I think it would be highly clarifying for Amer the American voters to, to, to understand both the nature of the threat that the, that the court now presents to all of our values, right, Pro progressive and Western liberal values, not just progressive values, but sort of like the foundational values of our democracy. And and it, and we could build momentum to actually constrain it. And, and you know, whether it's passing up passing a law like that at the end of the day, or, you know, building sufficient political popular power that the court, people like Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett, who want to continue to advance their agenda in their, from their, you know, comfortable perches on the court can see like, you know, we're going to have to respond to this or else, or else, um, you know, or else like people aren't just, are just not going to listen to us anymore because they can see that, you know, our decisions are corrupt, that they're the product of this corrupt scheme. And so that's, that's kind of what I think we need to be doing and, and we need to be working together and we, 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 we should not be despairing, right? We need to engage in our democracy if we want to have a chance to save it. That's great. Thank you. I needed that. That was a nice dose of, of of practical advice. And yeah, the Democrats should be doing this. It, it would be popular. And tying it into the Dobbs decision is the is the way to do it from a you know a PR standpoint. Like, hey, this is what happens when yeah. this happens. You know, your yeah. rights. And remembering fight. right, and remembering that like, that wasn't law, right? That was like just deliverance of a promise. That was yeah. you know that was Trump saying anybody I pick to the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe. And then they did because he promised they would. Yeah. Yeah. One of the only things he promised that came true, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so this was terrific. So um, where can we find you? Your Twitter is what? It's just your name. Is there an underscore? It's in my there? Name, Alex Aronson. Yeah. I don't have too much of a public thing, but yeah, Twitter, I, I tweet occasionally. Sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll have like Twitter bursts. <laughs> I like when you have Twitter bursts. Yeah. Particularly when uh, right wing, uh, you know, trolls defending Justice Thomas, surely on the take. Um <laughs> start to spout bad faith arguments. I like to tangle with them. That's good. Oh, you're, you're, you're a better man than I. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time today. It was great to see you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Greg. Great to be with you. 
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-O-W Media.